Well, good morning and Merry Christmas to you all. Why don't you take a minute and say Merry Christmas to the people around you. Just wish them. I mean, this is, this is a good time. It's a beautiful time of year. You know, this week I've heard conversations that have gone like this, as you may have as well. Um, can you believe it's only seven days to Christmas? My neighbor actually on their porch has this sign, and they change the number every day, uh, you know, 25 days to Christmas. And they were gone, they were out of town, and I was tasked with going and picking up packages on their porch. And I, I looked at the sign, and I thought, oh, they're gone because that's wrong. I mean, we, 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 we have, I hear things like this. Hey, you know, when I was a kid, it's like Christmas took forever to get here. And now it's going so fast, I can't believe it's already Christmas. And these are the conversations that we have. Somehow, Christmas in our culture singularly defines um, sort of like a moment that everything else revolves around. I love the busyness of Christmas I love the time that we get past the busyness to where it's Christmas Eve and Christmas morning and we get to just be with our family. It's, it's, it's a beautiful time. Some of our favorite stories often revolve around Christmas. Do you have a favorite Christmas story, something that happened in your life around Christmas? You know, times of great celebration. You know, I remember when I was a kid, uh, I don't remember many of the presents that I got, but I do remember there was one time when my parents were so excited about this present they were buying us. And so they begin to talk in code weeks before, months before uh, Christmas. And my, my, this is how it would go. My, my mom said, so Boyd, have you, um, have you ordered the airplane? And we're like, what, what's the airplane? Uh, yeah, Donna, I've, I've ordered the airplane. Uh, has the airplane come into the store yet? Boy, don't forget to go pick up the airplane. So, I mean, here we are. As the days and weeks come up to Christmas, we are getting more and more excited for the mystery present that they have been planning, whatever this airplane is. And finally, the day arrived, and we woke up, and there it was. What it was was a miniature pool table. It was about this long, this wide, had uh, tiny little balls, and we had the greatest times around the airplane. One of the greatest things of all was, turns out my dad is kind of a pool shark. He said that was a problem for him sometimes as a preacher, because people didn't think that preachers should be good at pool, but my, my dad was just good, and he would teach us how to play. I'll never forget that Christmas. It was so much fun. And the weeks afterwards. Um, Christmas also brings to my mind other memories. Like the Christmas when I flew to the Philippines for the Christmas day and then flew back in order to go back to school. And I was going to live with, I lived with my grandparents in Bloomfield, Iowa. Anybody here been to Bloomfield, Iowa? You got to go. I don't know why, but you got to go. Bloomfield, Iowa is about two and a half hours from Des Moines. So on this international flight, I landed in Des Moines, Iowa, and I was fully expecting to be picked up by my grandfather. That was the plan. I got my luggage. I went outside, and this is Iowa. You know what I'm saying? It's cold in Iowa. And I, I stood on the curb, and nobody was there. 
I waited, I looked, I waited, I looked. Finally, I went inside the terminal to look for a phone. That was when you had to look for a phone, by the way. That'll date me a little bit. And I called my grandparents' house, and my grandfather answered the phone. I says, Grandpa, I'm here. He says, Eddie, we're not coming to get you. Your grandmother is sick, and we're going to have to take her to the hospital. So grab your bags, find the Greyhound bus station, and then you make your way here. I'll pick you up at the square when you get here. It was up six or eight hours later. I got to Bloomfield, and my grandfather came and picked me up, took me home. I walked into the house. My grandmother was on the couch. That day, we took her to the hospital. She never came home. About eight weeks later, she died. And our lives changed forever. Some of you know about that kind of loss. All of a sudden, it's not just the people who came for Christmas, it's the people who aren't going to be here this Christmas. And it hurts every time. It's hard. One, else, one Christmas also that I'll never forget was the Christmas after James was born. When James was born, you know, he, he had some special needs and, and he, he, he wasn't gaining weight. In the first few weeks of his life, he went from seven pounds down to under five pounds, which is not the way you're supposed to go. And that became very critical. We flew back to the States and put him in Cox Hospital and they began to do what they can. And, and then he, he, began, he began to re regain his weight. And he's done a good job at that. He's a sturdy guy nowadays. He takes me to the dollar store all the time. Or maybe it's the other way around. Um, but I, re I remember that Christmas because, you know, he was born in July. And our, our lives had changed forever. We were flying into the world of families with people who have disabilities. Didn't know what that looked like. It was scary. It was uncertain. You know, we, we had questions about how accepted would our family be from this point on. And then I get a call. We get a call. Cindy got a call from a friend of ours, uh, another missionary kid that attended the school my kids went to. And this was her request. She says, um, hey, we are looking for a baby to be baby Jesus in the Christmas pageant. Any chance you'd let us have James? You know, I had been in the season where I was asking God, God, do you know how much this hurts? Do you know how confusing this is for me? Do you understand? Do you even care? Are you there? And then Cindy tells me, hey, guess what? They've asked if James could be baby Jesus in this year's Christmas pageant at school. And all I could think was, wow, what a way to start. His first role would be Jesus. But I was not prepared for the song that would accompany Mary holding baby Jesus, who was my baby James. And here was the song. All things work for our good, though sometimes we don't see how they could. Struggles that break our hearts in two sometimes blind us to the truth. 
Our Father knows what's best for you. His ways are not our own. So when your pathway grows dim and you just don't see him, remember that you're never alone. At this point, I'm the ugly crying father in the seat. And I can't help it. He sees the master plan. He holds our future in his hand. So don't live as those who have no hope. All our hope is found in him. We see the present clearly, but he sees the first and the last. And like a tapestry, he's weaving you and me to someday be just like him. That's a Christmas I'm never going to forget. I don't know what's going on in your life right now, but maybe there's something going on in your life. Maybe there's someone at home who is sick. My dad is home and he's sick and not doing so great. Maybe this year is tough for you because you've lost a job or, um, you know, some of you are going to go and be with your relatives and, you know, all, all of the relatives that ask you, ask you all of the awkward kind of uncomfortable questions like, do you have a job yet? You know what I'm saying? Uh, are you, did you get married? Do you have a boyfriend? Do you have a girlfriend? Okay, you know how that goes. Sometimes Christmas is unique because it pulls us out of the ordinary routines and the crazy parts of our life feel even crazier. More exaggerated, more in our face. But that's what Christmas is all about. Now, we got to see the kids come up, and weren't they awesome? I mean, let's give them another hand. Come on. I don't know where they are. At the center of the celebration of Christmas is the story of the birth of Jesus. And you get the best information about the birth of Jesus by reading the Gospels. Now, incidentally, Mark doesn't say anything about the birth of Jesus. It is Matthew who tells us all about the Christmas from Joseph's perspective. Joseph, he's engaged. His fiance says, Joseph, I'm expecting a baby, and it's not yours. Now, how do you process that? That's pretty complicated. Joseph is one of the godliest, most gracious men in the Bible. And so he goes and he contemplates, how am I going to graciously and, and, and navigate this very difficult moment without destroying Mary and preserving her dignity. And as he was thinking about how to do this, the angel of the Lord appears to him and says, Joseph, actually it's true. She's expecting a baby and the baby she's carrying is the son of God. And, and here's what I want you to do. I want you to go and marry her and be the stand-in stand father of this child. You will be responsible to provide, to protect, and yes, you will name him. And this is the name I want you to give him. His name is Jesus. And incidentally, he will save his people from their sins. It's a beautiful and magnificent story. Matthew tells us all about that. You go to the book of Luke, and Luke tells us the story of Christmas from Mary's perspective. Mary is this young, wonderful lady engaged to be married. And then she meets an angel one day. And the angel says, Mary, I, I, I need to tell you that God has chosen you. Do you remember that verse in Isaiah 7, 14? That nobody could understand exactly what it meant. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. What's the sign? 
9, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God is with us. And Mary, I, God has chosen for you to be that virgin. And Mary responds, uh, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And we have the, we have the, the Christmas story according to um, Luke, and he tells the story of Mary. John's gospel is where we want to go today. Nobody writes a Christmas pageant out of John. You know why? Because what he has to say is high and lofty theology that is amazing, but hard to act out. Here's, here's John's perspective. John begins by describing that Jesus is the word. John chapter 1, verses 1 to 5, and then we're going to jump to 10 to 14. In the beginning was the word, capital W, that means this is God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. A better translation would be overcome it. The light could not be overcome by the darkness. Verse 10, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him, but as many as received him, to them gave he the right to become the children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and be, we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now this is such an interesting thing, because you know, actually, John probably had more details about the birth of Christ than any other uh, disciple. Do you know why? Because on the cross, when Jesus was dying, the firstborn son of Mary, who also was at the foot of the cross with some of the disciples, Jesus says in his dying moment, man, what an incredible man, John, John, your mother, your, your son, and he makes this great exchange, and history says that from that point on, John took Mary, the mother of Jesus, into his own household, into his own home. And when the persecution broke out after Jesus was resurrected and, and John had to move to Ephesus, Mary came with him. They spent many, many hours around a table together and had many, many a conversations. You know what? I, I would have loved to have heard some of those conversations written down in John's gospel. I mean, like, really, they say that there were magi. In my house, our manger scene had three of them. You know what I'm saying? But I read today, scholars say we don't actually know if there were three. We, there might have been more. There might, who, who, we don't know. Like, I want to know, right? So John, why didn't you ask Mary how many wise men were there? Were there just three, one per gift? That's how we always do it, right? I mean, I'm happy with that. Where did they come from and how did they know? And what, Mary, when the angel came to you, what did the angel look like? Mary, when, when, you were, when you had delivered Jesus that night and all of a sudden, 
uh, shepherds start appearing who say that a host of angels appeared to them in the sky and told them to come look for a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger, and they all showed up. So much to, to know. And John says, really, what I want you to know is this. The Word became flesh, and He dwelt among us. you got to know the main point of this whole thing, or all the other stuff is just periphery. If you get the main point, the periphery is beautiful. So John's gospel is amazing because he proves, he says, absolutely, I want you to know that this baby that was born was God in the flesh. He wasn't 50% God and 50% man. He was actually 100% God and 100% man. You know, in the early church, there was all kinds of theories about how, how much of God was Jesus. And there was this council that took place one time. And um, there was this guy that had this theory that Jesus was born a man, but then he became God. And he was presenting his case before this august assembly one day. And there was a guy there. His name was St. Nick. I'm not making this up. And St. Nicholas was listening to this guy talk about how that Jesus wasn't God from the beginning, but he became God, and he got so upset, and he was getting angry and anger and anger, he actually stood up, walked across the room, and decked the guy. Now, he ended up in jail, so for all of you who are listening, don't, that's not a good thing. But I love it that St. Nick decked him, because he so believed that the mystery of the incarnation was that God actually became a man. Because this God was coming for us and identifying with us. Jesus, the author of life and the creator of all things, had designed the development of the fetus in the womb. Magnificent. And then he says, now I'm coming to experience all I have designed. He knew what it was like to be a son, a brother, he wasn't born in some household of privilege and wealth or position. He was exceedingly ordinary, and most people just never noticed him. He was just one other man walking around Nazareth. He knew what it was like to be hungry. He knew what it was like to be made fun of. He knew what it was like to experience everything that you and I experience. And he did that because he says, I... I know I can't save you unless I identify with you. So I have chosen 
the eternal God who rules heaven and earth to come and to limit myself to prove to you how much I love you. There was a guy who wrote his girlfriend a letter. By the way, guys, did you know you can actually go buy books that have love letters already done for you? Did you know that? Fair warning, though. You start copying those love letters and give them to your girlfriend or your wife. They're pretty smart, really. And they're going to say, you didn't write this. This is what he wrote. Dear Jennifer, I love you so much. I'd climb the highest mountain to, just to see your smile. I'd swim the deepest river infested with piranhas just for one of your kisses. I'd cross the wildest sea for one of your hugs. I'd cross the burning desert just to look into your face with never-ending love, Frank. P.S. I'll be over to see you next Wednesday if it doesn't rain. You know, Jesus limited himself because he wanted to show you how much he loves you. When our kids were younger, one of our daughters were swimming next door, actually, at the natatorium, and Cindy and I went to go and watch them swim. So we got into the natatorium, which is, by the way, is very humid in that natatorium. If you haven't not been there, you should go. Just enjoy the humidity. Um, and we sat down, and um, we looked down the way, and we noticed a family with uh, a bunch of little kids, and one of their ch children, a daughter, was in a wheelchair and clearly had some disabilities. And, um, you know, we kind of have have a, an eye for that kind of thing. That's the world we live in. And so I just kind of looked over and, and began to watch. And um, I mean, this girl was unable to speak. It didn't look like she had the ability to see. And the only movement that, that she made was kind of a smile ever so slightly. And I noticed the mother was watching the swimming competition and her other two little children and then I also noticed that this mother just quietly was holding the hand of her daughter in the wheelchair. There was a tenderness there. There was a connection. There was the sense of being there with her and for her. It was real love. And it was so contagious. I mean, anyone watching could tell that that was her little girl inside that disabled body, and she was precious to her. And they were willing to pay the price to love her, which meant they would be always inconvenienced, and they would have limitations forever on their family. But in the middle of the noise, in the commotion of the natatorium, we had a picture of real love. 
And, and I say that because in some sort of way, God was willing to limit himself to come hold your hand and to say to you, I understand. I know you. And I have come for you. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's such an amazing story. Second thing that, that he points out in this is that light has more power than darkness. That he was light. And he brought light. And the darkness couldn't overpower it. Because light's going to win. Now John at this point in his life was no stranger to the darkness that surrounded the, him and the world. I mean, shortly after Jesus' ascension, people in the first church started experiencing persecution. I mean, Stephen was the first martyr of the church. And then the apostle Paul rallied his troops to go and to kill, imprison, or destroy other Christians until Saul himself met Jesus and became the Apostle Paul. What The Bible is amazing. But persecution had broken out, and John had seen the pain and the, the thickness of the darkness that remained even after Jesus' resurrection and ascension. I mean, his best buddies, the, his other disciples, every single one of them were martyred. Matthew, Matthew was martyred in Ethiopia by a sword wound. Mark died in Alexandria, Egypt after being dragged by horses through the streets until he was dead. Luke was hanged in Greece because he was preaching. I mean, all of these disciples experienced this level of darkness. John himself had been boiled in oil. He miraculously survived, only then to be sentenced to the Isle of Patmos because they were determined, Rome was determined to shut him up. And do you know what God does? He reveals to him the book of Revelation. Shut him up. Oh no, no way. Nero had Christians burned on stakes like candles in his gardens. And John had lost family and friends the, you know, history says that the blood of the martyrs are the seeds of the church. In spite of all the darkness and the pain and the loss, John declares, the light shines in darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. The light is going to win. If you have Jesus, you will win. John gives a perspective here in his gospel that is so magnificent. We face circumstances so difficult. Sometimes we can be overcome with the darkness that exists. It's real. I meet people and talk to people all the time that even as they talk, the pain and the angst of the darkness of their soul because of their experiences 
because of their woundedness, because of the evil that has been inflicted upon them. It is so observable. And Jesus says to all who are angry and discouraged and struggling, let me be your light. My light is so powerful, no matter how deep the darkness of your soul, I can help you. 1 Corinthians 15, 54. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. That is the ultimate statement for all who are in Christ. John talks to us about the fact that Jesus came to be with us because he loves us. And he declares, whatever darkness you're going through right now, if you will cry out to Jesus for help and open up your heart to him and say to him, I'm confused, I'm hurting, I'm struggling. I need your light. His light can come in, change you, guide you. John declares this after a life of pain and suffering and struggle. And he says with great conviction, I am convinced that the darkness will not win and defeat the light I have felt and experienced in Jesus. Rosalind Picard uh, is a professor at MIT, and um, she tells her story. She says, as, an early, as, as, as early as grade school, um, I was a straight-A student. I identified with being smart. I mean, I believe smart people didn't need religion. As a result, I dared my, declared myself an atheist and dismissed people who believed in God as uneducated. In high school, I babysat to earn money. One of my favorite families was a young couple. Both the husband, a doctor, and the wife were really sharp. One night after paying me, they invited me to church. I was stunned. People this smart actually went to church? When Sunday morning came around, I told them I had a stomachache. Finally, eventually the couple tried a different track. They said, going to church is not really what matters most. What matters is what you believe. Have you read the Bible? The doctor suggested that I start in Proverbs. To my surprise, Proverbs was full of wisdom. I had to pause while reading and, and think. And then re I read through the entire Bible. I felt this strange sense of being spoken to. I began wondering whether there really might be a God. In my freshman year in college, I reconnected with a friend of mine who was also a straight-A student and a star on both the basketball and the football, uh, basketball court and the football field. I had never known anyone so smart and athletic, and then he invited me to his church. One Sunday, the pastor got my attention when he asked, who is the Lord of your life? I was intrigued. I was the captain of my ship, but was it possible that God would actually be willing to lead me? In the, the spirit of Pascal's wager, I decided to run an experiment, believing 
I had much to gain, but very little to lose. And so after I prayed, Jesus Christ, I ask you to be the Lord of my life. My world changed dramatically. It was as if a flat black and white existence suddenly turned full color and three-dimensional. I felt joy and freedom, but also a heightened sense of responsibility and challenge. Today, I'm a professor at the top university, MIT, in my field. I work closely with people whose lives are filled with medical struggles, people whose children are not healthy. I do not have adequate answers to explain all their suffering, but I know there is a God of unfathomable greatness and love who freely enters into relationship with all who confess their sins and call upon his name. I once thought I was too smart to believe in God. Now I know I was an arrogant fool who snubbed the greatest mind in the cosmos. The author of all science, mathematics, art, and everything else there is to know. Today, I walk humbly, having received the most undeserved grace. And the light overcame the darkness for her. And today, it's Christmas. We're celebrating this week. Two things you need to know. God loved you so much. He confined himself to the body of a baby. He lived a life like we live. So that he, the only man ever who was 100% God and 100% man and who was no, no sin at all. So he could go and to a cross and pay not for his sin but for the sin of the world. And he can offer because of who he was and what he did to forgive all who come and in that moment receive the light of life that can and never will go away. Would you bow your heads, please?